I could read people, create situations of conversation or, you know, even intentional awkwardness, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I do stuff all the time that's still kind of that way where, <laughs> I mean, I realize I'm kind of a weird guy and like, I'm com totally comfortable with that. Yeah. You know, if someone called me normal, it'd be way more insulting uh, <laughs> than if you called me anything else. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's a level of um, just adaption in how your childhood, you know, formed you yeah. and whether that was positive or negative and then what you took out of that from positive or negative. And, uh, you know, for me, I turned a lot of things into a positive. What is going on, everyone? Welcome. And I'm excited to have Josh Avon here today. What an interesting story you have, an interesting background. And I know that we already have a connection because we talked a couple things before we started rolling. Uh, cats, kittens, and boxing. So right off the bat, if you could have that conversation with someone and have a connection, you know it's going to be a good talk. So I'm excited. Josh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you for me. being here. Honored to be here. So let everyone know a quick little snippet about who you are and what you do and kind of like how you got to there. All right. So I was born. Uh, <laughs> so I, I do actually think one of the interesting things about uh, about me that doesn't uh, I, I find even friends I've had for like ten years either don't know or forget it is I was born in Alaska, which I think is a weird defining feature that has kind of like replicated my life uh, in odd ways because um, not a lot of people are born there. Uh, I was born in Ketchikan, Alaska, and uh, if you meet someone else born there, um, I probably know them actually. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you know, they, who knows? It might be family. Uh, it's just, it's a weird thing. Cause like, I, I was like, man, I just, I just developed a lot of weird skills like in life, even though we moved around a lot and I didn't even really grow up there. Uh, I was like, I, I think that interest level of being from there, uh, continued to, it's like, I have odd outdoor skills that I shouldn't have for someone who just loves living in the city. How old were you when you left Alaska? Uh, just before two. So I really don't have uh, a lot of experience like being there, but I don't know, just developed a lot of weird things. Like our, our mutual friend, uh, you know, Dan, I was out hanging out at uh, his ranch we were walking around and uh, he has this axe throwing uh, like course and uh, he you know I, and I'm not good at knife throwing and so uh, we try throwing a few knives it doesn't go well and he goes oh hey can you throw an axe I was like yeah I can I can throw an axe and so I, I he he showed me how he throws it he did quite well and then I throw it, the first axe it's just absolute dead center and he goes you should never throw an axe again after that that should just be it yeah. I was like well I mean I have thrown axes before <laughs> Yeah. So let me say, do your parents tell you of things you did as a little one up until two years old that you were you outdoors a lot? Were you, you know? Yeah, but I think even until uh, really moving to L.A. at 16, I was always just pretty outdoorsy because I, I lived in Virginia and uh, all, and Colorado and other places where we were just outside you yeah. know, doing stuff. So I learned how to rock climb and ski and whitewater raft and start a fire, eat from you know just foraging and stuff like that that's wild so did you ever do anything like the boy scouts or mm -hmm. anything like no no it was just part of your life just yeah. doing outdoor stuff yeah yeah so what's a skill that you think that you have that most people should have when it comes to like outdoor stuff like that so i mean i definitely think just uh having I mean, talking about even fighting it great sense of balance mm -hmm. um so people and i mean actual physical balance not just like balanced life metaphysical i mean actual physical balance so a lot of people, when they go hiking outdoors, like going around, uh, a lot of accidents happen because people fall. They slip, they step wrong, they, you know, they, you know, they're not paying attention to things. But a lot of it has to do with just your your physical balance and your ability to to right yourself if something's going wrong. Yeah. 
like that alone, I mean, just walk on a balance beam or like work on your, you know, yoga skills or your core, your core muscles yeah. to make sure that you actually have the ability to really keep a true center. Um, it's remarkable. Cause then if you're doing your rock climbing or your whitewater rafting, kayaking, you know, swimming, surfing, any of those sports, um, having that balance is, you know, the key to everything. That's so cool. Have you ever done that slack line thing? Mm -hmm. Have you ever yeah. tried that? I've tried it. I'm not good at it. Yeah. Yeah. So that one, I feel like I would need to work out more. Yeah. 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 I tried it once. It didn't work out well. Yes. But I was I was intrigued by the people and some of the people yeah. I saw doing it. If you looked at them, you're like, this person is never going to be able to make it across right. that because just by their appearance. Yeah. Yet they were, yeah. and it was it was incredible. I think you're right in that a lot of people today they're not paying attention for a lot of different reasons. You know, they're distracted with their cell phones and things yep. like that, but they're also not paying attention to their bodies. And I see that from the people I talk to from like a fitness standpoint, and they're just automatically in a state where they're like, I can never do that. And I'm like, well, you know, your, your body has to be like, you know, we, I guess, come from an ancestry of like, you know, being warriors and, you know, being efficient with our bodies. Like I think of Tarzan yeah. as a little kid and I'm like, yeah, like everyone should be able to do that. Right. Yeah. And so oh, when yeah. you, when you talk about your body, I like, and, I like that you pick a fictional character that swings from, yeah, <laughs> everyone should be able to do that. Like, <laughs> tree to tree. I don't know no if problem. I could do that. <laughs> um, but like, I look at that, I'm like, yeah, like we getting back to, I mean, we were, I don't know. You, of course you had this, but when I was a kid, there was this thing in uh, school. I don't even know what grade it was. It's called like the presidential physical fitness yeah, yeah. test, right? right? And you had to like go through all these yep. these things. Yeah, of and I don't even know if they still have that. I don't know. Either. I don't no. think it's still. I don't think it exists. And I was like, well, it was a great thing. Like as little kids, and you know, obviously it's different today. You know, yep. you go to playgrounds, and most of them are empty. You know, back in the day, they were, we were on the jungle gym. We were doing pull ups. We were you know climbing across the things, and we yep. were doing all the stuff. So you're right. Like from a just from a physical fitness standpoint, but balance, you know, that, that alone, I see doing jujitsu that my footwork and balance has increased. And I thought it was pretty good, but now I realize it's so much better. And like you said, you trip, you catch yourself a little bit differently yeah. than, or if you fall, you can now just naturally roll and not just hit the ground and break something. Exactly. And it's, I, it's hard to say that it's, it's a skill that everyone should have just like have balance, know how to take a fall and all these, but most most people don't. And that's but it's one area of fitness I think everyone and, I, and I'm not the epitome of fitness by any means. I mean, I I realize that I have a dad bod. I like to call it a father figure, <laughs> but um, I do have three kids, so it's okay. Oh, there you go. So you can say it. My excuse. Yeah. There you go. So now, so you transitioned out of Alaska um, after two. Yeah. So where are some of the places you landed? Yeah. So we moved uh, 14 times before 16. Uh, yeah. So I lived. Alaska, Missouri, a uh, little bit around there, and then um, mostly around the D.C. area. So okay. Southern Virginia, Northern Maryland, uh, uh, sorry, Southern Maryland, Northern Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, and then a little bit in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and then back to the oh. D.C. Uh, area, and then over to Colorado, okay. a few places, and then California. Came out for college and never looked back. That's it. Yeah. So you've been out in Cali for how long? Let's see. I moved out in '98. Uh, '98. So yeah. Okay. Yep. So talk I'll, about. I'll do the math on that. <laughs> Talk about a little bit of how you kind of got into it. Was it post school that you got into business? Yeah. So I always wanted to do, uh, or I always wanted to get into business. Um, 
my family is is highly educated, but mostly in theology. Okay. Uh, so my both my parents and my sister have advanced degrees in different aspects of theology, uh, and I was reading the Wall Street Journal and the Economist. Mm. So I felt like my uh, dinner time conversations, especially as a say between twelve and sixteen, were not interesting to them, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it, very like different paths there, and. I went to college. I, I went to go to a school that had a good business program, mm -hmm. so I ended up going to USC Marshall School of Business. Okay, and um, yeah, and majoring in business uh, with an emphasis in in corporate finance and accounting. Okay, and and I was I looked at it. I was like, I wanted to do something applied math, you know, because I think it's a, you walk out with an immediate tool set that you can apply somewhere. Sure. Uh, you know, getting into finance, being able to have like a skill where you could kind of go to any company and at least get a job doing something. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I and I started as an employee. And then, you know, worked my way up a bit for a few years before branching off. Uh, I think I was 27 when I started my first business. Okay. And what was that? So it was an um, investment advisory okay. uh, with uh, clients, basically mid-market. And then it got into family office advisory where, you know, through, you know, good good fortune, good blessings, I got uh, introduced to some people in uh, family offices that had massive amounts of money and I had a skill set that was useful okay. uh, to help advise them, especially on commercial real estate. Um, and how to place money and introduce deals. Uh, so I was able to introduce deal flows and manage money and hire a team that was better than me uh, in actually, you know, actually doing the work. But I was good at finding the deal flow and uh, good at being that attracted center uh, of getting each side of the deal, both the money and the deal, uh, and then figure out how to match make the two uh, in between. So essentially meeting with people who were, let's say, had a significant net worth and guiding them onto where to put their money because maybe they didn't have that knowledge or that background. Yeah, or access. I mean, they, they, a lot of times they have the, the knowledge and they can obviously always hire to pay for it because they have the money for it. Yeah. But the some of the deals I was able to to do really just had to do with being in the right place at the right time. But um, you have to know the deal and you have mm -hmm. to know, be able to analyze that well. But a lot of people can do that. I think what I brought that was a little different to the table is I could read people really well and I could figure mm -hmm. out what kind of deal were they really looking for? So I had it in my head, you know, the different family offices that I would help, you know, give deals to. And I, I knew what they were looking for. Like, what is their risk mitigation at that time? What's their, you know, investment objective? What's their time horizons? No, and knowing kind of their sectors and what they're comfortable with, uncomfortable with, what kind of people that if they met, they just might instantly dislike, even if the deal was good. Mm -hmm. I know this deal is not going to happen because they're just, you know, something's going to clash here, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I developed a really good reputation where, you know, all the deals we did went through, you know, if we said a deal was going to get funded, they all got funded. Um, yeah, some, some deals were quite large. You know, we did, uh, I think one of the more interesting ones, you know, and I really middleman the deal, right? So I didn't, um, you know, have a, a huge piece of it, but I don't think it would have happened without me by any means, which is the Lifetime Fitness out in Summerlin. Okay. Uh, when that box went up and it was like 51 million or something. And, you know, we were able to put that deal together really quickly before it hit market to get the buyers a great price on it, mm -hmm. um, to get it sold, you know, really effectively uh, and take a spread on the deal, you know, where we got consulting fees on very large consulting fees yeah. you know, for put, helping construct the deal and, and matchmaking it. Wow. I've been there. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Really a beautiful place. Yeah. Had nothing to do with building it, just 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 the real estate, just the real estate, side, which yeah. is the most important yeah. part because but, of the location. Exactly. And the thing is, is like, you know, it's... Um, you know, being able to underwrite that and and look at it, you know, constructively and and again knowing where, you know, because I I brought the the people that ended up buying and I was like, okay, I see how this would work. I think they're the ones 
I just know where they're at right now in their yeah. portfolio. Let's let's put this out to them and see if they they can do it. No kidding. Nope. So you mentioned something about reading people and my background prior to going into my career of law enforcement, I couldn't read people at all. Mm. But then I learned 13 years of essentially having people lie to you all day long because it's like, do you know how fast you're going? Do you know your speed? Did you, you know, you just ran that stop sign. No, I didn't. You know, so you essentially had people in compromise. Did, did you ever pull me over? I don't know. Uh, did, did I, I give know. you a ticket? Maybe. No, I don't know. I don't mean <laughs> Odds are you didn't give me a ticket. So they, I didn't, you know what? The the perception, funny enough, that most people think when they see a car pulled over on the side of the road is that person's getting a ticket. But yeah. most of the time, they're probably not getting a ticket. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, just... I, I've been pulled over countless times. Yeah. And... I'm proud to admit. <laughs> Slightly ashamed and proud to admit. Uh, I think I have like four or five speeding tickets. But Now, when you get pulled over and you know you're speeding, yeah. do you pretend that you weren't speeding oh, or no. do you just... Oh, 100% honest. So my role's always been... Uh, so I, you know, even when I was young, I figured out that I had like this charm where I could kind of convince people of things. So I always had a rule: you can't lie about anything. Everything you say has to be true. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to tell everyone everything, but everything has to be true. So, first time I ever got pulled over is actually for running a stop sign. Uh -huh. um, in college, I was leaving a friend's apartment. It's like I don't know, two, three in the morning. I hadn't been drinking, no drugs, and drink anyway back then. Uh, so I was 100% sober. It just there's kind of a tree that grew over the stop sign. I didn't see it. Yeah. And I saw the cop actually coming down, and we had a four-way stop. I see him coming down. And I see he has a stop sign. I see the line on the ground says stop, right? So I know he's going to stop, so I, I go, and I make a left turn in front of him. Uh, and uh, then he does, you mm -hmm. know, you turn and uh, comes behind me and pulls me over. He goes, hey, did you see the stop sign? I was like, no. I saw, But I saw you at a stop sign. I saw you were stopping. I was like, but I, I don't think I had a stop sign. I really didn't. Oh, wow. And, uh, I mean, I was being honest. I didn't, yeah. didn't, didn't think I had a stop sign. I would have stopped. I saw it. Yeah, oh, yeah that's stop. true. So, I mean, it's very, like, so, and, uh, you know, I'm, I, first time being pulled over, I'm nervous. You know, my hand's definitely shaking a little bit. I yeah. realized it. I kind of memorized the pattern, if you will. And um, so, you know, he runs my license or whatever and goes, okay, you know, I'm going to let you off the warning. You know, make sure you drive safe and all that, right? Um, the worst time I got pulled over uh was i don't know am i allowed to say this i guess yeah statute of limitations up mm, yeah. okay thanks yeah. a lot for some yeah uh <laughs> I, I got pulled over let's just say going at an excessively fast uh rate on the freeway yeah uh here in la okay also probably two three o'clock at night because fairly empty freeway and it let's just give a rate let's say it was between like 120 150 i don't know okay somewhere that. in that and by the range. way i don't know how fast it was okay and honestly i really don't um because when the cop tagged me I don't know how fast it was. It was in a range. So that's not slow. Uh, so the cop pulls me over and he had, he had been getting onto the freeway and me and, I don't know, let's say that there was one other car going about the same speed for some oh, reason. Not sure why. Yeah. But the two of us you. were going about the same speed yeah. for some reason. Yeah. And when he pulled on the freeway, um, you get what I'm saying, right? Uh -huh. okay. uh -huh. uh, but when he pulled on the freeway, he said he was going about 75 and we flew by him like he was staying still. So he pulls me over and he goes, um, do you know how fast you're going? I was like, well, I don't know exactly how fast I was going. Which, again, Which was true. 100% true. Yeah. And he goes, tells me the, okay, I pulled on the freeway and you flew by me. I was like, okay. Um, he goes, uh, do you have any tickets on your record? I was like, no, I, I don't. Um, he goes, why were you driving so fast? I was like, honestly, because it was an empty freeway and I, I just wanted to. I thought the other guy was chasing <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, and uh, so he asked me where I was coming from and uh, I, I, I was a youth leader at a church and um and so I was actually coming no, back. Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> and he goes, uh, yeah. So he's the pastor of the church. I was like, oh, he's Jack Hayford. Um, yeah. He's the pastor of the church. 
Um, and he goes, okay, okay. Goes back, runs my stuff. He goes, so you're pretty lucky in that. He goes, my dad's a four square pastor too. So no. I, I know you're telling the truth. And all right, I'm going to write you the ticket for, I think I can write it for 84 where you can still do traffic school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I just so you know, I could have arrested you and pounded your car, mm -hmm. taken away your license. Uh, just so you know. I'm no, good. I was like, we're doubling the speed limit. It's like, uh, yeah, God bless you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so can I ask what kind of car you were in? Oh, it was, just, it was a slightly modified BMW. Okay. Three series. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty much maxing it out. So just it was just honest. And I, you know what? I found that to be the case with me. Mm -hmm. As I stopped more people, I started to learn over a period of 13 years. You start to really learn people. Yeah. And not only on motor vehicle stops. You know, all hours of the day, all hours of the night, you're going to people's homes. They're calling 911. They got a domestic dispute. Their kid just punched a hole in the wall. And they're, they're dealing with their neighbor who's like blowing leaves on their lawn. So you start reading people and you start noticing different behaviors and... Like you said, you could tell in what you did, these people are coming in with money, but I know I can't put them in front of this guy over here because their personalities are going to clash yeah. and the deal's not going to go through. So I know I need to connect them with someone else or bring someone else in. That is something that, yeah, I, I honed that skill as an officer, but I don't know how I would have been able to do it if I didn't have that role as an officer for 13 years, yeah. dealing with so many different people, so many different ages, different cultural backgrounds, different things, like, you know, certain homes you walk into, and in that culture, you can't address the wife. Yeah. You can't address the wife. You have to address the yeah. husband, the man, Sorry, yeah. you know, and yep. these are little things I didn't know. <clears throat> like, I just didn't know these things. How did you learn? How did you start reading people? How did you learn about people getting into your business? Like, what, how, what, brought you to that point where you you knew this person is not going to mesh with this person so i know i can't bring these two together like what did you learn that in college did you learn that as yeah. a young man i mean i think it came from uh also my upbringing so yeah i mentioned i moved around a lot uh so one piece of that is you're always the new kid so mm -hmm. you know it, it, and how that it's going to affect you could be very different so i think like i have an older sister i think she was affected differently than i was and kind of how we adapted to mm -hmm. our scenario you know, and also had a bit of a volatile household, you know, so one is like you're reading, you know, your parents and figuring out what is their state of mind right now from a volatility standpoint, you know, is it safe, is it unsafe? And then you're also going into lots of new situations with, with kids and adults. And for me, it, it's a survival mechanism originally, you know, mm -hmm. as a kid, you develop it because you have to. Yeah. Um, then growing up, like, especially in high school, college, it became just a very like uh, social advantage to where I could read people, create situations of conversation or, you know, even intentional awkwardness. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I do stuff all the time that's still kind of that way where, <laughs> I mean, I realize I'm kind of a weird guy and like I'm com totally comfortable with that. Yeah. You know, if someone called me normal, it'd be way more insulting uh, <laughs> than if you called me anything else. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's a level of um, just adaption in how your childhood you know formed you yeah and whether that was positive or negative and then what you took out of that from positive or negative and uh, you know for me i turned a lot of things into a positive by by figuring out here's people here's how to read people here's how to protect yourself from certain kinds of people mm -hmm. you know as well and you know and i have a lot of you know really close long-term friends um you know and then i also have a massive you know friend acquaintance pool yeah you know that exists out there and then just people i just prefer not to be around yeah. Uh, because I'm like, oh man, 
high level, you know, narcissist with mm-hmm. yeah, sociopathic tendencies, antisocial yeah. disorder now, um, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And and you start identifying those those patterns. You're like, that's someone I, you you know where they're gonna like screw you at the end of the day, right? Yeah. You, and even if it's just they don't even want to, it's just in their nature. You yep. have the, the the what frog and scorpion type yep. analogy, right? That's right. Just in their nature. Yep. And so you you gotta kinda of keep a little bit of distance, but there's sometimes people you can be around for a while. But then good friends, you know, they're the ones you can fully trust and you're know, led into all the areas of your life and yeah, you know, but also because you read their nature and, and you know that they're gonna make intentionally, you know, good decisions, good for you, good for other people. Yeah. You know, universally good. So yeah. I look at what you just said and you know you're online and you hear a lot of different people and you hear people like warren buffett say like one of the most important things that led to his success was saying no mm-hmm. and yeah that I, and i believe that 100 percent. but you just hit on something i also think one of the most important things that i found growing up as most of the places i grew up like everyone looked like you no one looked like me so i kind of had to be a chameleon and go above and beyond to fit in and not just not be gr- growing up in DC area, more people looked like you and didn't look like me. Oh, so yeah, yeah. so you probably understand <laughs> the flip side. Yeah. And one of the hardest things, and I think a lot of people need to recognize this, is who not to keep in your world. Yeah. And one of the things I it took me a while, but I got better at it. I'm sure you did too, of quickly eliminating and pushing out the people that I knew didn't need to be in my world. And I wasn't good at that at first. And I wouldn't be here today if I didn't get good at that and start recognizing. And sometimes there are people that you've known for a while, but then it just takes some time for you to realize the kind of person they are. And it's not something like, you know, sinister. It's just that, yeah, not this person. So I'm going to slowly move away from that person because I know that ultimately their nature is going to be to not support what I'm doing. And So what are some of the indicators for you uh, of that nature? One of the biggest things I see is when I have an achievement or I have an accomplishment, the people who don't say anything. And it's not like they, they, they're not, you know, there's a certain number of people who will say, hey, that's awesome. Congrats, you know, whatever. And it's not so much the people who say, hey, you know, screw that guy or whatever. It's the people who say nothing. Mm. And, and I noticed that. Like after like I started getting some early success in the very beginning, there was a small contingent of people who were like, bro, that's awesome. Congrats. You know, what are you going to do next? You know, this is amazing because, you know, I grew up in a small town and where I grew up, like people didn't like go out and venture into the world and like do big things. But then I noticed the people who were in my circle that were very quiet and didn't say much. And I could tell there was almost like maybe a little bit of animosity, maybe jealousy. And although they didn't vocalize it, their silence and their demeanor and their attitude during those times made it very clear how they felt. So I slowly started just pushing away and not even putting what I was doing out to those people because I kind of felt their energy and I said, okay, I don't, I don't need that in my world. Everyone that's going to be in my circle and my network, I'm going to cheerlead for them and they're going to cheerlead for me and they're going to push up and push me forward. And if you're not doing that, that, and that was really hard because there were some people who I'd known for a long time, but then I started noticing how they were. And then, of course, you always meet the people who you hear through back channels that they're like, oh, yeah, that's not going to work out for him. Yeah, he's, he's going to fail at that. And I would hear people say that about things that I was doing, and I would be like, wow, I, I, like, I know that guy. I celebrated him when he was that's like right. 
you know, hustling and whatever. I can't believe he said that about me, that I'm not going to make it or, you know, so I was like, wow, that's, but then that's the nature of certain people, like you said, Door. you know, it so is. I didn't let it, you know, at first it brings you down. You're like, you're kind of like bummed out. You're like, oh man. But I realized the faster I got those people out of my world, the faster I moved ahead yep. because it was just less and less distraction with those negative people. And well, it takes an emotional toll if you keep them around, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah Cause I, I don't, you know, relationally, I never like getting ri like rid of people right in my life. So yeah, but there is putting distance, yes. you know, because there's an emotional toll. Like if you keep uh, people who are, I mean, especially jealousy, right? It's a huge one because a lot of times they're looking at you and especially if you came up together uh, and then you've had a lot more success than they've experienced so far. You know, there's an, a natural kind of jealousy for some people that come from that. And because there's pretty much two reactions if you were close to that person, they're jealous of you or they're going to celebrate you, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you have the same mindset where, you know, I have a lot of successful friends far more successful than me in many cases. Yeah. I celebrate them. That's amazing. Like, I'm not jealous at all. Yeah. We have our own paths and we're friends. Uh, why wouldn't I celebrate that they just had some big win, sold a company, made a great investment, yeah. did this great thing. You know, it's amazing, you yeah. know? And if anything, it might push me harder because I'm like, dude, I don't want to like fall out of that peer group in a way, right? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> does that make sense? But, yeah. um, you know, but I'm not jealous at all of it, yeah. you know? and and. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. I learn from that. I kind of, when that happens, I feel that's an opportunity, especially when someone does something ev like far greater than like what we're, like, like you said, like the little network has. Mm -hmm. There's like always once in a while, one guy in the group, like there's a big deal or, you know, you know, jumps out of a certain situation, gets a big payout. I'm like, oh yeah. Like, I like, like we're having lunch, we're having dinner. I'm buying you a, a drink. We're going out. I want to know. Tell me about like the deal. Tell me totally. about how it worked and whatever, because that it shows that you know you're a supporter of that person. Yeah. You're celebrating that person. But part of it is I want to I want to absorb some of that. I want to know Absolutely. like because yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I want to be the next one in yeah. the group that gets to that level. Like a, a buddy of mine, uh, you know, for marketing agencies, which is my main, you know, operator operating company is my marketing agency, and he's he sold his company back. I think it was. Uh, end of 2019 mm -hmm. and you know when he sold we were pretty similar size uh he had a lot more employees but top line revenue was pretty similar he was a touch bigger um sold for a great great number uh based on his multiple uh even though i've continued to grow and expand you know business since then there's no way i could get that number today because he sold at a time mm -hmm. when the market was perfectly primed and he'd started his company a few years earlier so he was a little bit better set up to sell okay. from just you know having everything just in line and in order and having uh, an executive team as well that was ready to take over and he had a two-year earnout which he also did phenomenally on i can look at that and i'm, I'm not all jealous I, I was like man i need to learn to see those spots in the market where you know and i'm kind of I, I don't think i would have sold no matter what yeah. it was just not the right time in the business for me to do it i wasn't like done with it i couldn't even look at trx it would have been tough you know but now fast forward four years I, I know that if I tried to put my business up for the market today, even though strong numbers, strong team, more seasoned, you know, uh, leadership and stuff, I could not get that number today at all. No kidding. Got, yeah, just because the market's changed, private equity markets. So now do you, are you able to now keep a finger on the pulse of the market and determine when that time will be? Yeah, yeah. So that's, I think, part of it now. Even though I'm not looking to sell, yeah. uh, which is the right time to start looking to sell, right? <laughs> right, right? Because right. you don't need to sell, right? So if you're profitable, things are cash flowing, yeah. you know, you don't need to sell. But that's 100% the time to look, right? Yeah. 
you know, and I've been given the advice before is like, even if, you know, I don't really use debt in a lot of things. So it's like, I'm the least experienced in debt. Someone told me, Hey, if you ever need to get like debt or lines of credit, get it when you don't need it, because when you need it, it's hard to get, yeah. when you don't need it really easy to get same, same kind of philosophy. If you're looking to sell your business, keep an eye on the market like constantly when you don't want to sell, because then you might have these outsized opportunities that come along, you know, like my buddy when he sold and yeah, I mean, you can get those outsized, you know, opportunities that are maybe probably two to four X what they'd be today Yeah, you know, in reality. Yeah. So. so tell me a little bit about how you kind of transition from, let me say the financial world to marketing. When, yeah. at what point did that happen? Probably around 20, uh, I do it by my daughter's ages, uh, 2014, 2015. Yeah. So things were going pretty well. And I, I'd actually, that lifetime fitness deal was actually a little bit um, crucial in part of this decision matrix, by the way, uh -huh. um, because I had the opportunity to invest in a direct-to-consumer apparel company. Okay. And um, I'd invested in it. There were a lot of problems with the business. Uh, you know, great team, you know, great company, uh, but very inexperienced operators. And they had, um, they'd fallen behind in their charity obligations along with other uh, debts. So they were running money, they were raising money for charity and they're raising X amount of money. Uh, and then they'd paid roughly half uh, to oh. charity that they had actually raised. Wow. And they were fully intended to try to pay it, but they were expanding operations too. They were overbloated on their uh, employees. Uh, you know, the world had changed a little bit too, because it's right when, um, especially Facebook was starting to force uh, ad buying to get mm -hmm. to your full audience, yeah. where before you could post, you know, the same post every hour and delete and get to like tons of your audience just by replication of post. and because everything was reverse chronological, um, you know, versus edge ranking. Mm -hmm. So as things started to change, um, they, they didn't really uh, adapt well to how much it would cost to acquire a customer. Mm -hmm. So it bloated operations, cost to acquire the customer skyrocketing went from essentially zero or man hours to actual paying for it. Mm -hmm. um, they just didn't have the margin uh, and scale to, to keep up. So they'd fallen quite behind. And, you know, so I'd invested in it with some other people uh, and all of our money went to pay the charity. So nothing really helped the operations of the company. All of our money, um, you know, I think a little bit maybe went to operations, but most of it all went to uh, to uh, the charities, mm -hmm. which is great. All yeah. of us would have given money to charity anyway. So my thesis, which I uh, unfortunately discovered was slightly wrong, was we put money in and uh, worst case scenario, the business goes bankrupt and we write off the investment because... You know, and essentially from a tax perspective, kind of, kind of works the same way as if you donated the money to charity. Yeah. And again, we would have donated the money to charity anyway. Uh, best case scenario, it actually works. And we're part of a, a good company that's doing a lot of good work that we're excited to be a part of. Yeah. And we own a piece of it. Um, that's awesome, right? We would have invested in companies anyway. So yeah. the thesis was good. I forgot about something, or I didn't think of it back then, which was, well, what happens if the company continues to not do well, make bad decisions, and doesn't close? Mm. Right? What happens then? Wow. Oh, well, that's bad. Yeah. You know, it might actually be doing harm to the world and, you know, you have no recourse really. Wow. So I was getting pretty frustrated by some poor decisions that were made. Um, and the board asked if I was willing to step in as a CEO and run the company. Mm -hmm. And because I hate joy and love pain, I said yes um, to <laughs> to running it. Uh, it was really hard. I have a little gray hair here in my beard, which maybe I'm a little too shaved to see it. Yeah. It's the only gray I have still. Uh, and it was, was from that. Yeah, that's for like 2015. <laughs> um, but I, because I just done that real estate deal as well, I had, you know, money in the bank and stuff. And I remember, uh, I remember thinking, I was like, man, I, cause I was going to go out and buy a, buy a new car, you know, a nice car, something a little flashy, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember cause I decided to accept the role 
to be the CEO, I was like, oh, I can't go buy the car because bad optics, right? You know, you, you step into a troubled company that's raising money and, and charities aren't getting paid fully. And I can't suddenly drive up to the office in a, in a flashy car, and, uh, uh, even though I, I didn't make any money from the company, it came from what I really did yeah, work. Yeah. Right? It's bad optics. So, you know, you learn those kind of things. So I took over the company. Uh, the long story short, which doesn't really express the, all the, the pain and agony uh, that everyone went through, including vendors, um, to give them credit, uh, you know, about nine and a half months later, we'd been able to pay back the charities. Mm-hmm. Um, we made the company, you know, cash flow positive enough to do that. We still had vendor debt and other stuff, but uh, we were able to sell off the company and its assets uh, after that. So took care of the employees, took care of the charities as best we could, tried to take care of the vendors as much as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it taught me a lot because in finance, I'd always hired people who were older and more experienced than me. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they were usually five, 10 years older. They had lots of letters behind their names, you know, MBA, yeah. mm-hmm. CFP, CFA. I have none of those things. So when, <laughs> when people would ask me, hey, do you have an MBA? I was like, yeah, I got a couple of those. And <laughs> uh, from what schools? Ah, good ones. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know? yeah. It took me uh, the effort and time to hire them to get them on board. And you know, but then running a an e-commerce company, it, it, a lot of these the employees, many of them was their first job, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so they had very low experience. You know, a couple of years in the workforce, uh, but they were well intended. You know, brilliant people who were willing to work hard. And, you know, I brought in some, some people I'd hired before in other companies and brought them in and they helped, but yeah, it, it was rough, but I loved the experience of it. And I learned that digital marketing and finance are very similar, meaning you're tr- trying to drive ROI, mm-hmm. return on investment. <clears throat> so if I deploy a dollar in, you know, if it, back then in my own company, you know, I, I needed that to, to give me a return that was profitable and gave me lots of free cash flow because I needed to make payroll, I needed to pay rent, you know, I needed to pay the charities, I needed to make sure I had a future. And, and we turned it from having about a, like a 2.6 return on ad spend, uh-huh. kind of think about that as an ROI number, yeah. to getting, you know, upwards of a nine to one, you know, return on ad spend wow. and, a, and a scalable six to one return on ad spend. But we didn't have cash to scale it either because we were constantly having to pay back back yeah. past bills, yeah. which is why we had to ultimately sell. Cause I was like, I, I could, I was like, I can pull this thing out, but then I couldn't get the cash and other people owned more of the company than I did. So I was like, you guys have to come along. Can't just be yeah. me just powering this through. So, um, that's, that's ultimately why, yeah, the company was sold, but I liked it enough. So kind of after, you know, maybe a period of depression or so mm-hmm. after, uh, back at the company. Cause I mean, again, there's a lot more to the story than yeah. I'm able to summarize and even like probably an hour conversation and we definitely need like a, a good beer here to, yeah. <laughs> to, to do it. Um, so I'm telling you the, the shortened version, you know, after that, I just needed some time yeah. and, uh, I was mentoring this, this kid out of uh, Minnesota that also had a social good apparel brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he asked me to come in and help him run the company. Um, I did that for six months, part-time flying into Minnesota every two weeks for a few days. And we got the company, you know, they'd done 5 million the year before 600,000 when I first met him to start mentoring him 5 million the year before. I stepped in and we did 21 million in the six months that I was helping run it with him. Um, wow. And I thought they were on a really good path to then hit like 30 to 35 million to get past 40, 45 million. The company never quite hit those numbers. Um, it, it did get up into the kind of that first next level, but, um, but I knew I couldn't like keep doing this part time. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, I, I'm going to start being a problem to that business. I'm going to be dive bombing mm-hmm. the hallway conversations. Right. Cause yeah. you know, when you have, a team and staff and everyone's working together. And then you have this guy coming in from California for three or four days, every two weeks yeah. and you, you start dive bombing. So you can do that when it's small cause you're give, giving that the acceleration to the company that's needed. Yeah. You know, the structure acceleration, you know, problem solving, problem identification. Cause some of the things like, I mean, 
trust me, if you talk to the, the two main founders today, I don't think that they realized that in the first week I, I solved a problem for them that could have just absolutely crushed their business. Well, what because, it? well it, was a, it was a data problem. So they were having a fulfillment issue where they had a, um, a package. Uh, so basically the way that data packages were sent to their fulfillment uh, house, um, and it was losing data uh, every, uh, I think it was every 15 minutes. Uh, it was losing about one, I, f I forget if it was about like 30 seconds of data. So it's about two minutes of data was lost every 60 minutes. It just wasn't getting sent. So basically these packages were getting pushed, you know, pushed through to fulfillment yeah. every 15 minutes. But every time it was getting pushed, there was a latency of collecting that package information to then go into it. Okay. And we started seeing, and because I'd just been working at a company where we had had a major, major issue yeah. that had done this, where we had tons of unfulfilled orders, but not anyone's particular fault, just massive problem by uh, data function and not having good communication between both sides. Um, I looked at this and I was like, hey, I'm starting to see that you have people saying that they're not receiving their packages. And statistically, there's no way that's just UPS or something. Yeah. You know, yeah. delivery, like losing the package, which does happen, but sure. yeah. very small incident rate. Yeah. Right. So I was going, this is now becoming statistically significant where we're seeing hundreds of incidents, you know, and which is not major at this point. It's very fixable. But we, I just dealt with something that was like 34,000 issues. So, I, my the pain of that dealing with thirty four thousand influenced how deeply I and so me and one of the founders just worked in the office you know pretty much all night one night and uh, figured out the problem and then uh, we were able to see that it, it was because of this data set so we kicked out this middle middle software brought in the the old FTP you know protocols I renewed it to where everything was fixed and then obviously sent the packages to every everyone or refunded them and. But th that one issue, even if it wasn't caught in the next days, weeks, months, could have been massive. And because it was relatively small at first, yeah. but it grows. And you know, if you don't have experience in the pain of going, oh, you got to fix that now, because that's going to become major. It's going to cost you tons. Yeah. It hurts your brand reputation. You know, oh. companies. You know, yeah. customers coming at you. Yeah. Your social media scores go down. Your customer service costs increase. You know, you have a whole nightmare to deal with. And then going from that into fourth quarter. Which you know we were able to you know remember we did five the company did five million the year before we did like I think it was two point five two million on Cyber Monday alone uh, that year in one day. Is if you hadn't caught that you know back in that was oh, probably August yeah you know the the hassle the reputation everything just could have easily um, snowballed you know down into what uh, you know Q four would have been and the company might not have gotten there and, and lots of other issues too but that's just one incidence of. You have to stay on top of it and why these small things matter. Yeah. You know, and create this, you know, even now, like with Curio, my marketing company, I talk about the two to 10% difference where a lot of stuff I do strategically with, with a company and mm -hmm. even my team does because we do a lot of paid media and we do, you know, branded tactics and we do email and SMS, okay. which are more like your common, but we also do advice, like strategic advice to companies. Okay. And so the two to 10% difference is if I can help your company change its direction by even 2%, and then you're escalating in your revenue, the amount of divergence that that will cause the business is massive down the road. Yeah. You don't, month to month, you know, if you take one month of the 30 days to the 90 days, you don't see that a yeah. lot. But if you can make even a 2% directional difference over the course of three years, it's massively different. If you make a 10% directional course change, exponential yeah. life-changing difference. Yeah, it's kind of like in boating, if you're off to your destination exactly, by like yeah. That's two degrees, yeah. you know, you end up <laughs> on a different continent. Yeah. So when you when you did that for that company, obviously you're you took what you saw from your previous experience and you're like, oh, I, I'm noticing this now. Yep. Now, if you see that, 
does that make you start digging elsewhere and saying, okay, so now if we had this yeah. breakdown here, which small problems solved early, you know, easy Never resolve. really become a problem. If yeah. you let, if you let it go for however long, like, oh, that's not that, it's not that big of a deal. It's only a couple of words. Like you said, if you, that you let that go, it festers and it turns into a massive problem. So now does that trigger you to look at other things? Like from a standpoint of someone who's an entrepreneur, someone who's trying to like, whatever, whatever it might be that you're trying to set your goal on, you're going to run into some breakdowns, some small breakdowns early. But now what did that trigger you to look at? Did that trigger you to look at some other things to say, okay, well, if this is going wrong here. What potentially might I look at as well? Is that? Yeah. So I, I think one of the things I was, um, yeah, it's kind of just core to my nature is risk mitigation mm -hmm. or just really understand how to measure risk. So I'm, I'm not a risk adverse person at all. Uh, the way that I kind of describe it is, hey, you want to jump off a cliff into a body of water? Let's go. You jump first. <laughs> I'll jump second. How do you make it? How do you make it? Oh, okay, I'll jump with you. Yeah, you made it. You know, all good. Right. Yeah, I'll jump too. Um, so that's what I mean by uh, measured risk, though. Is you know, it, and I actually do cliff jump sometimes. So like, if someone's not there, jump first. You know, I'm probably not jumping in, unless I swam near the bottom, make sure it's clear. Yeah. You know, and then climb on up and you know jump off a cliff. Why not? It's fun. But uh, you know, if you see a lot of the locals, like you're, you're traveling in the South Pacific or something, you see locals jumping off a bridge or jumping off a cliff. Well, why not? Yeah, you know, go for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you know how to swim and the rest, but yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe you understand your own physical abilities. But yeah, if you're, you know, if you're competent to do that, you know, you can see that it's happening, and um, you can do it too. So I think that's the measured risk part of finding different areas of a business mm -hmm. and going, this is a major, major issue, or this is a non-issue. You know, you're putting a lot of time, resources, and effort on it. It's not something that's going to cascade on you. So you actually maybe need to stop putting as much time and effort on this and focus on the positive growth side now too. Yeah. Cause it, and we see that a lot right now, which in the way that people are measuring uh, returns on ad spend, so attribution, yeah. where they put so much time and effort on it, they're ignoring lift metrics. Where like I have to have these conversations with companies where they're seeing, you know, 130% increase in revenue, 70% increase in revenue uh, over time, mm -hmm. you know, and we're seeing small increases in marketing budget. So it means that the new term is market efficiency ratios. Uh -huh. You see the market efficiency ratios going up significantly. Yeah. But the attribution, meaning Facebook, Google, whatever yeah. ad tech platform you're using, but let Facebook and Google being the two biggest, cool. you look at those two and then you see the on-platform attribution sometimes being stagnant or even down. And they're like, well, I don't know if this is working. I'm like, of course it's working. The attribution signal strength is down because of all these different factors in technology right now. Yeah. But it's definitely still working because look at all of your front side metrics that we're judging how well the ad served, the click through rate, who it's getting served to, yeah. you know, all these front end that we can still judge that and you're seeing the lift, right? So yeah. as long as you have those metrics, then not to ignore it, you want to be very cognizant of what's working and what's not. Yeah. But you also, like I've had people go, hey, can we just shut off Facebook and Google ads? I was like, yeah, you can. It's a horrible idea. Yeah. And you'll lose money. Yeah. But you can. I mean, I just had a client do that where they shut off Google because they wanted to see how well Facebook was working. I was like, well, because you have a high consideration product, people aren't going to click through. They're very unlikely to click through at a high rate on Facebook ads and buy in the same session. Yeah. Right. So they're going to think about your product. They're going to research other places about your product and then they're going to come back and buy. So if you shut off Google, which is your mid and lower funnel, well, they're not going to find your product as easily. Yeah. They're find another one. Yeah. So you brought awareness and you brought mid funnel. But there, we need the bottom funnel here to actually convert. And yep. So by shutting off Google, you're going to lose ads. They did it. They shut off Google. Sure enough, sales went right down. They're like, well, what happened? I was like, well, remember 
talked about this. Yeah. Do it again. Yeah. And now turn Google back on. So that's a very common conversation, infinitely frustrating that unfortunately I have to have quite frequently because, um, but they're, because they're focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and actually at that same time, if you look at profitability, they were, you know, because uh, they were a lot less profitable. Now they're, you know, you know, getting to break even on one of their product lines that we're helping them grow. Okay. And we're, I think we're very close to getting like full on scalable profitable. And I was like, but see how unprofitable you were before? So you're actually losing less money. I know it's not a great argument, but you know, you're losing very, very little money right now versus losing a lot of money. Yeah. to get you to profitability very quickly. Yeah. Just don't change course. Like it's, uh, it's so wild. You know, that's, that's an emotional thing. Like, it is. I, I'm well, people hate losing money. I hate losing money. I hate losing money. And, but there's a couple of times with a few of the businesses, I reacted like that where with regard to Google, uh, performance max or the branded campaigns weren't doing mm -hmm. well. And I'm like, shut it off, shut it down. We're going to stop. We're, let's stop hemorrhaging. And it took me years to learn. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not the right, that's not the right decision, yeah. you know? Um, and there's, there's a whole lot of things that go into those things, but yeah, just making that that knee jerk re reaction to say, okay, yeah, the Facebook ads aren't performing anymore. So I've learned along the way, you know, okay, adjust to creative, but you got to keep kind of pushing along. Yeah. Let me ask you this, and I think this might be the most important question to you: Is there a difference between branding and marketing for those people who are maybe trying to start a business, you know, whatever, sell a product, whatever? And how would you define that difference? And do you put more weight on one or the other? Yeah. So great question. Um, I think there's three parts to it. So I think there's brand, there's marketing, and there's sales. Um, so and each one is is part of the same system, mm -hmm. but for, uh, serves a different function. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So brand. So if I said Coca-Cola, you immediately have an image in your head. You know the colors. You can probably hear you know the fizz popping <laughs> on the ads the as, they, yeah. as they open it. Yeah. Right. Um, we've all seen a million ads. If I say Nike, McDonald's, you know, you have a visual Apple, right? You have this visual image that is both uh, a visceral uh, cognitive image and also an emotional feeling yeah. about it. Yeah. That's brand. Okay. So without going incredibly deep on what is brand and how to create it, that's brand. You know, you mentioned Buffett earlier to quote him separately. He talks about creating a brand moat uh, around your company, mm -hmm. right? So that's your protection against, you know, whether it's a negative review or maybe poor leadership that you were able to replace or other things, that brand moat will help protect you in many cases. It will help you sell a product. Mm -hmm. It will not always be the sales function to sell the product. So marketing is how you reach the consumer. So remember the fizz, the colors of Coke, right? Well, what was that? How did you get that? Well, you, you saw it via an ad usually, right? So it yeah. could have been a television, could have been the movie, could have been a product placement, you know, on a TV show. It could have been a social media ad, you know, Google function, display ad, whatever. Um, that's marketing. So it, marketing is the system that you're deploying creative, uh, hopefully a high branded creative in a way that makes people want to desire your product. Mm -hmm. So you need to create curiosity. So curio, my yeah. company means object of curiosity. Okay. So our goal is to drive people to become curious about products. Mm -hmm. So how do you drive a curiosity? How do you drive desire uh, to make people more interested to discover the product to then get to the point of wanting to desire and want that product, whatever that is. Okay. Um, that's marketing. Sales is the sales function. So in e-commerce, it's your product description page down to your checkout process, down to your thank you. So you're welcome to thank you flow. Yeah. Right. In, you know, more of a practical brick and mortar experience, it's you going and taking that Coke, you know, off the off the shelf of a, you know, 7-Eleven, Target, whatever. Yeah. And you're buying it and you're opening it up and enjoying it. Right. It's 
it's that that's the sales experience but you had to get on shelf right yes. so you had to figure out like okay if i need to sell it in 7-11s then you know 7-11 has to have a purchase order the purchase order then has to you know get fulfilled and shipped to there and you had to have the product manufacturer to be able to do that that's yeah. that's the sales function someone had to go to 7-11 probably corporate get that purchase order to sell it and do it in e-commerce it's getting someone from the brand experience to we placed it at the right place at the right time at the right price in front of the right person um and then they got that and came onto your site your website experienced the product description page went through the discovery journey they said okay i like this and i'm interested in this they add to cart they check out it's seamless you know you didn't get in the way of them checking out by asking too many questions or making it challenging or difficult on them yeah uh, and then when they get the product hopefully it surprises and delights them yeah you know, where they're impressed by this and it's amazing for them and they want to tell their friends about it and that cycles back to the brand because as soon as you gave them a great experience with a product yeah and they tell people about it or they repurchase yeah now that goes back into brand which yeah. then restarts that funnel for marketing to sales and you want to ruin them you want to get to the point where they're like this is the best uh, like I, I, yeah. i'm never going to go back to that other thing again yeah like, like chris and ellie we were just talking about yeah their clothing brand yeah. which I mean, not they don't own it but the one they like wearing um aloe yoga yeah Marco send clothes. Um, so yeah, so with uh, yeah, and they love it, right? And I, I do too. I think it's a great brand. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> you know they love it because it's it's well made. It's it's better made than the immediate competition mm -hmm. as well. You know which we don't need to mention. But if you look at the surrounding set similar price range, it's a better made you know product in my opinion. And there's you know I, and more forward styles and. It's actually a little bit uh, more affordable in most cases yeah. too. So it's actually perfectly placed to that market. Yeah. Where then the the main competitor actually has had to increase their quality to now compete against Aloe, which was the upstart brand, mm. I don't know, eight years ago or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's that's part of creating that surprise and delight where we just had a conversation about how much they love their clothes yeah. because it's a great product yeah. and they love it. Yeah, it's amazing. And if you gave them a mediocre experience, that that conversation's not happening. They wouldn't even mention it. In fact, it might have been a negative conversation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Wow, man, listen, there's like a hundred other things. I know we got to close, but there's like a. I mean, I wanted to get into the deeper into the marketing. We're gonna fight after thoughts this, right? on Amazon. So we're gonna we're, yeah, we're gonna fight. Yeah, after we're putting this. on the gloves after yeah, this. Okay. Um, last question, really quick, one answer. Greatest boxer of all time. Oh, well, pound for pound, greatest boxer of all time. Mike Tyson. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good answer, <laughs> guys. Thank you. Easy answer. Oh, that's an easy one. Um, there's some. I, I I have a good friend who would say Hagler, but uh, uh, it's, it's good fighter. Good fighter. Yeah. It's not gonna be Tyson as prime. No, no. No. Prime and prime. No. no. Um. Before I go, where can people find you? Yeah. Um. I try to hide, so not well. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. A lot of my social media is private on purpose because I I post my family and my kids and wife and house and stuff. And yeah, I, I don't I want it to be that way. Uh, you know, link, LinkedIn, Josh Avon. Uh, you can also email me at Josh at Curio .life. I actually get my emails there. Uh, you know, that's and the website for Curio Curio .life, C U R I O dot life. Awesome, yeah. awesome, Josh. Thank you so much. This was all, thank and you. I know there's going to be a part really two appreciate this it. because there's just it. We just there's so much more here, but thank you so much, man. Thanks Looking for being to. here. Thank you.